This weekend, we're starting a series called This Explains It All. In a nutshell, it's a conversation about how we understand how the world came to be and, and something really important that smart people call our worldview, our worldview. And I found that our worldview really starts to come to the surface when we start facing some of the hard questions in life. I felt like the Spirit has been leading me to preach on this topic for some time because I've seen these worldview level questions surface daily as we see things that are happening on the world stage. I'm having conversations all the time with my children and with friends about some of the hardest questions. Like, for example, you know, we would talk about protecting unborn life. Why do we do that as Christians? Why do we feel that way? If, if, if we're a collection of cells, you know, is, is that it or is there something else going on there? And if we would say, hey, we're pro-life, then why are we simultaneously, some of us, pro-capital punishment? Like, what's going on with that? That's a hard life question. How about this one? How should we think about things like human trafficking and the war in Israel? Why should I care about the Pacific garbage patch? You guys know what that is? Why should I care about, like, I live on the East Coast. We don't have smog out here. Why do, why do I care about a single-use plastic ban so that there's not Walmart bags in all of the bushes? Like, do, how should I think about that as a Christian? How about this one? This is a doozy. Why is there evil at all in the world? Why, why is that the case? Because if my high school teacher, if that was true, what they told me, then we're all just animals fighting for resources. It's all just survival of the fittest. If that's the case, then why do I feel like there's actually something wrong happening across the world and it's not just survival of the fittest, that there is something morally happening there? Those, those are huge Huge conversations. They're kind of foundational conversations for us as Christians. They're important. I would say this, that in our series, our goal is to have conversations about life's biggest questions. The truth is, those questions are formed by our human experience. We experience things, and the problem is our human experience can't answer the questions that we come up with. What I mean is that there's a gap there between what we want to know and what we actually know by our human experience. Is there a God? Is he good? Is it a he or a she or an it? How are we created? How are humans specifically created? These are the questions that inform some of our biggest worldview questions. And there's a gap. There's a gap there between what we know and what we want to know. Because here's newsflash, like you and I weren't there. We weren't there. We can't observe these things, and so what we have to come to grips with is that every single one of us fill that gap with some sort of faith. We fill it with faith because in our human experience, it's impossible for us to come to answers with these things. We fill it with faith, and, and the thing is, some of you would say, no, 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 I don't fill it with faith, I fill it with science, but science can't answer those questions either. They can't. They can't answer the origins of life questions because the scientific method is built upon observation and experimentation. And the thing is, none of us were there. We can't observe this. And when someone else tells us something that they say to be true, how do we know it's true? Well, we're taking that on faith. We're taking it on faith. It takes faith. Even more, 
Science is wonderful. Like, I'm very pro-science. I'm very pro-air conditioning. I'm very pro-french fries from McDonald's and cars. All of that is awesome and wonderful. But science is not geared to answer some of our deepest questions. Not of how, but of why. Why? Science can't answer that. And so it's not at all that science and belief in God are at odds. Science can't disprove or prove his existence. It's simply saying that I don't believe that science is really well suited to answer the questions that ultimately keep us up at night. We always have to fill this gap with faith, every single one of us. And so my question that I would ask you is, what are you filling it with? What are you filling that gap with? There are so many sources of information on a daily basis coming from media and coming from Instafacegram and from everything that we are like just bombarding at us. Am I going to fill that gap with what my high school teacher said, with what my political affiliation is telling me? Am I going to fill that with what my church tells me or what the documentary that I watch tells me? And then ultimately, we have to ask this question as we develop our worldview, does that worldview actually help the world make the most amount of sense to us. Now, guys, we're in a Christian church, so it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that we're actually going to go to the Bible to help fill that gap for us. That shouldn't be a, ch a challenge for us. And, and if you're a follower of Jesus, this is going to be so critical for you to be here in the next couple weeks because we want to understand what is the foundation of our own faith, but equally for us to understand the framework so that we can have conversations with other people about the foundation, not just of our faith, but listen, of our ethics and how we and why we believe things should be the way that they are. And if you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I am so grateful we get to be a part of your exploration of faith. I think this is an incredible series for you to engage with because even at the end of the day, if you and I disagree if we agree to disagree, at least you'll know the foundation of why Christians believe what they believe. So turn with me to your Bibles to the very beginning. Let's start at the very beginning to quote Maria Von Trapp. Here we go. We'll start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. We're literally going to be on page one in the orange Bibles and probably any of your Bibles. It's the only place where we'll all have the same page number. It's page number one in Genesis, Genesis chapter one. And as you're turning there, listen. I want you to know this. This is really important. The reason that we would look at what we're getting ready to look at and say, we believe that this is the word of God is not because it's an ancient book that someone handed to us. We can find lots of ancient books. The reason we would say this is the word of God is because Jesus of Nazareth believed that it was the word of God. He quoted it over and over and over again. And anyone that can heal, anyone that can uh, that can set free anyone that can heal the blind and the lame and the leopard, anyone who can call their own death and resurrection three days later and then actually pull that off, we're just going to go with what they say. And he believed that this was the word of God. Genesis chapter 1 is so helpful for us. This is what it says. We're gonna, I'm just going to read kind of the beginning of this passage and a couple verses from the end. There's a lot there. You can read it on your own. There's like 35, 36 verses, but this is what it tells us. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and it was empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, 
let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Go down to verse 31 at the end of the chapter. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from his work. God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and of the earth and when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. All right, this morning as we engage in this conversation, I'm going to put a parenthesis around kind of this next little bit that I think it's really important that as we try to probe some of these deep questions of life, we have to understand something really important. And that is any time you approach a piece of literature, a book, a letter, poetry, an instruction manual, we have to understand, especially an ancient one, we have to understand that it's embedded in a culture. It's embedded in a culture. What do I mean by that? I mean that this book of Genesis was not written to us, but it was written for us. It wasn't written to us. It was actually written from an ancient Hebrew to an ancient Hebrew audience and embedded in the culture of an ancient Hebrew culture and everything that that meant. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. We would say that we believe this, the supernatural aspect of God's word is that his spirit carries it through the ages. And as we look at it, we can say we can learn things about the heart and the mind of God for us here today. But it's embedded. It's embedded in a culture, and that culture has meaning. And if we ultimately don't want to impose our own meaning on a text. We actually want to learn what does this literature actually mean to its original audience. And I want to give you an example of why this is important, okay? If I called you Nimrod, what would that mean? Anybody, shout it out. Idiot, what else? Like simpleton, adult, right? That's what that means in our culture. But did you know it didn't always mean that? Do you know who Nimrod is? Nimrod is a relative of Noah, in the biblical account, the historical account, he's called a great and mighty hunter. So to David, to Isaac, to Abraham, if you would have called them Nimrod, they would have taken that as a sign of like great esteem, of quality of character. That all changed in 1940. Do you know what happened in 1940? Bugs Bunny happened in 1940. <laughs> and he was being hunted by his adversary, a dim-witted foe named Elmer Fudd. And he sarcastically looks at Elmer Fudd and he says, way to go, Nimrod. Way to go, sarcastically, mighty hunter. So it did not always mean dimwit, but then in our culture, our cultural expression now understands Nimrod to mean something very, very different. And if you read scripture and said, Nimrod, this person must be dumb, you're actually misreading it, aren't you? So my point is simply that it, there's a cultural embeddedness that's taking place. And the challenge is when we step into Christian Bible studies, we, are so, we do this all the time, is someone will say in a Bible study, hey, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? 
That's a terrible question. That's not the question. The question is, what did it mean to the original audience? So listen, the next time you're in a life group or a Bible study and someone says, hey, what does it mean to you? You have my permission to rebuke them and call them Nimrod, okay? <laughs> All right? We want to know what it meant to the original audience. It wasn't written to us, but it is written for us. This is really, is really important for us to understand this passage. The book Genesis means literally the, the origins, the beginning of and it's really showing us what was the ancient, this is a big word, cosmology. And that simply is the study of how something not just came to be, but what it means. What it means. The book of Genesis is a part of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it was written by Moses to the nation of Israel during a time when they were having identity challenges. If you're familiar with the biblical narrative, the Hebrews were taken as slaves in Egypt. They were there through Joseph, and they started to get, like the Egyptians were like, there's a lot of them, we better enslave them. Now they're enslaved, and and now now they're like taking their baby boys, and they're killing them. And so they're in this place where they're divorced from their Hebrew heritage. They're forced into labor. God sees their cries, sends Moses to liberate them. Moses finally gets Pharaoh to agree They start running into the wilderness, and Pharaoh changes his mind, starts charging after them with the the armies of Egypt, and then all of a sudden, they're freaking out, and they're saying, listen, it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt than to die out here in the wilderness, and God does something amazing. He parts the Red Sea. They walk through dry land. They're like, hey, look, there's a sea turtle. This is amazing. They get to the other side. The, The sea collapses on the Egyptian army. God saves the day. And now, you can imagine what it must have been like for them. They had left everything they had ever known. They grew up their entire life in slavery. And now they're thrust into the wilderness with millions of people. And they're looking at a wild, desolate wasteland. And there's no infrastructure, no horticulture. There's no sources of water. There's no sources of food. You want us to follow who? You, Moses, who are you? And who is this God? I know the Egyptian gods. Raw and the Pharaoh says he's a God. I know the Mesopotamian gods about how they say things came about, but how do I understand who this Jehovah God is? And so they had a, a crisis of identity in a very real way. They stood at the doorstep of very real practical threats because things were wild and untamed and it was chaotic. Their world was being turned upside down. And so they're in the desert. And Moses records this revelation from God supernaturally so that these Hebrews would know who their God is. So that they would know who they are, how they came to be, what God was up to, what he's going to do with all of this chaos and disorder that they're living in the middle of. And the first thing that we need to know about this account is that fundamentally this is not about material, it's about meaning. It's not about material. It's about meaning. For them, they wanted to know, how is this meaningful? See, we're Westerners. As Westerners, we think about everything scientifically, don't we? Like, what's it made out of? Those were not the questions that they were asking. We look at, can it be empirically measured? But they weren't asking those questions. They were saying, who is behind this? Who are we? Why is this happening? They were more interested in function and meaning. 
I want you to think of it this way. Whether it was the ancient Hebrews or us today, imagine just because we're in the same position as them. We, they weren't there at the beginning either. It's almost like we're all stepping late into a play. You know, you kind of do that waddle to get in spot, and you're late, you're a third of the way through, and all of a sudden you sit down and you say to your friend, hey, what's going on? And imagine the person said, well, this play was written in 1945 by such and such, and they didn't believe in typewriters, so they used an ink fountain pen, and they used two reams of paper, and that floor isn't made out of MDF, it's extra tongue and groove oak, and you'd be going, what are you talking about? I want to know who the characters are. I want to know what's happening in the play. I want to know what all of this means and where's the structure and, and where's the form to all of this. I don't, I don't care about how it came to be. I want to know what's happening in the story. We approach it empirically. They want to know how it functioned. They, they wanted to ask questions. They weren't science questions. They were saying, how is this Jehovah God any different than, than Ra, than the Egyptian gods? How is this Jehovah God any different than the Mesopotamian gods, the Chaldean gods. Is, is this God trustworthy? How can I know him? Well, how does he feel about us? Is he going to abandon us in the desert? And that's how it was embedded in that culture. And so when they read and, and Moses says, this is what you need to know about your God. In the beginning, God. It would make a great tattoo, a great t-shirt. Right? In the beginning, God for them was significant because according to their ancient Egyptian cosmology, the god Autumn, A-T-U-M, was born out of the turbulence in the sea. The sea represented chaos. There's where the ocean monsters dwelled. You couldn't know what was down there. You could traverse it, but it was a place of great chaos. Like think about old-timey maps. Old-timey maps, what's always like... In the middle of the sea is like some serpent, the kraken, right? The kraken's out there. I mean, it's unknown. And the Egyptian cosmology said their God actually came out of that chaos. Moses says, that's not your God. Your God didn't come out of the chaos. You're, before all of that happened, in the beginning, God. And the Chaldeans, that was the other cosmology, they, they believed that the world came to be through a conflict between two deities and in ancient cosmologies, new things can only be created by a God dying, by one subduing and conquering another. It was conflict. Conflict is how it happened. Moses tells the Hebrews, no. Before everything, before everything else was, was God. He didn't emerge from creation. He's over it. He's not a figment of someone's imagination. He's not the result of, of lesser forces struggling. He's greater than the sun the Egyptians worshipped. And he's not subject to other gods the way the Sumerians believed. Moses is telling the Hebrews, hey, listen, this Jehovah God that's leading us into the wilderness did, wasn't created through fighting and through, through war. He created through speech and through peace. This is the God that you worship. You need to know this. Guys, you were wandering, and I know that you're uncertain about what's in the future. I know you're uncertain about whether you can trust me, Moses. I know you're like, can I trust this Jehovah God? But you need to know, in the beginning, God. It says, in the beginning, God created. It's the Hebrew word, bara, created the heavens and the earth. And it, the, the meaning behind that word doesn't simply mean the material goods, the atoms. Like, that's what we think of but it actually has more to do with God creating function and form and order 
because this is the status of how everything was. Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Again, what does the ocean represent? It's the craziness, right? Darkness was over the surface of the deep. What was wild, what was chaotic? Darkness, water was. And the Spirit of God was hovering, not in, over the waters. And you look, your, your, your God looks at the world, it's formless, the NIV, and scholars love to geek out about this. They call it empty and void, empty and formless. It's a fun word to say. It's tohu wabohu. Everybody say that word. It's right. Tohu wabohu. Sounds like a Star Wars character, right? Tohu wabohu. And here's what it means. Here's what it means, okay? Tohu literally means formless. Formless. I don't know, a ball of goose. I don't know. I don't know what it was. Formless. It didn't have form. It didn't have shape. Wabohu means that it didn't have function. The, the world was, it was chaotic. It was wild. It didn't have any purpose. There was no form. There was no function. Maybe a way that we can understand it, some scholars would say it was a wild wasteland, but even that doesn't quite capture it. And yes, we would say God created the actual atoms and everything that existed, but that was not the question the Hebrews were asking. Because they were surrounded by the wildness. There were wild beasts out, out there, and, and we're out there, and there's no water, and, and, and there's, there's the wilderness, and oh, by the way, there's the sea over there. God is over all of that. God saw the wilderness, Moses would say, and God brought order and function to that. He determines its boundaries. He sets it in place. He's intentional. He's, he's intelligent. He's purposeful. It would be like if I asked you, hey, describe what home means to you. And you said, well, I've got tar shingles, and I've got a detached garage, got a pretty long driveway, and, you know, it's got some vinyl siding and brick on this one side. That's not how we understand our home. We would say, well, my wife, she homeschools the kids, or my kids are, are, are now working, or they're out of the house, and and we really, these are the values of our home. We love to spend time together. I really wish that they were. We talk about our home in terms of the meaning, not of the material. And so the next 27 verses is this. It's the Jehovah God speaking to the wildness and saying, hey, here's light. Here's day. Here's land. Here's the animals all according to their kind. I'm going to give them order according to their kind. He, he goes and he says, I'm going to create man according to its kind. He does all of that. And he says, this is good. And then he gets to the end of it and he says, it's very good. It's not chaos anymore. It's not the wilderness. It's not the fighting or the warring between these lesser gods. He says, you know what the natural state of my creation is? It's actually the peace of God, the shalom of God. And when you think about shalom, that's this Jewish word that maybe you've heard. It doesn't simply mean an absence of conflict. It means unity. It means integrity. It means prosperity. It means flourishing, not just for human beings, but for all of creation. It was God's design, and it wasn't simply to be craziness. Now, we're going to talk about how this went off course in a couple weeks when we get to Genesis chapter 3, but God creates order out of chaos, not in competition. He's the one true God, and it's almost as if Moses is grabbing these people and saying, you need to know 
who your God is. You need to know who your God is. Because I know you're going to go through the wilderness. And you're going to wonder, can I trust him? Is this going to eat us alive? You know, and the nations that we're going to be surrounded by, are they going to be victorious over us? Is he just one of many? Can we really trust him? God says, yes. I spoke it into being. This is who you are. This is where, this is where we're going. It's really the beginning of the overarching story of scripture and that is God created it for perfect peace there was a fall he's redeeming it and he's going to restore it that's all of it creation fall redemption and restoration that's the story of God's word and we're looking at the beginning of it and I actually think it's so helpful for you and I remember we said it's not written to us but it is written for us and so we want this to kind of like come off the page and enter into our lives right here Because the Hebrews, what were they struggling with? They were struggling with their identity. They were struggling with, hey, we live in a world of chaos and disorder. We we live in a world where there's a lot of different worldviews on how we should understand this. Does that feel familiar at all to y'all? Like, we live in a worldview where there's lots of competing worldviews. There's not one way to God. There's lots of ways to God. And it's all random, and none of it matters at all. Where's the meaning in that? How do we understand what is right and what is true if it's just survival of the fittest? Where does does our understanding of what's right and wrong, is my right more right than your right? And how do I know that? Is there a universal right? Probably as we think about taking this off the page into where we live right now, the very first fundamental truth that we have to wrestle, wrestle, not just how did they understand it, but how do we understand it, is this, is that in the beginning, there was God. He is a God. He is God, and he is real. In the beginning, there are not multiple gods. There's just the unbelievable majesty of the great Elohim. In that moment, here's what we realize. We realize that God is eternal. God is eternal, and this is going to get crazy and deep, you know, but if you stop to think about it, before everything was created, God was. He's going to be here at the end of everything, and the reality is that you and I are going to die sometime. We are going to die, and when we study the Bible, when we fill the gap of faith with the Bible, we understand that eternity goes on beyond our lives, that our God is eternal. Before everything was, he was there. He will be there at the end. That is our God, foundational truth for us. But there's another one that we have to reconcile, and it's that God created in an ordered, intelligent, good form. Like, he, he intentionally ordered the world. And we have to, re- if we're going to say the Bible is our authority, we have to reject any cosmology that says we're all just random. It's all just random. There is an intelligent designer. Listen, when you see a beautiful painting, you don't think, man, how did these pigments just randomly end up on this canvas? You say, wow painter did that and when I see a bridge I don't think man how did this steel just randomly end up here I say there was an architect there was a builder they knew what they were doing there's intelligent loving design behind it the book of Romans tells us this that when we look out at creation when we look out at creation from the ancient Hebrew to the college student to the soccer dad to the pygmy in Africa we look at the work of creation and we realize that there's something behind it Paul says it this way. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, 
his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, when I think about all this stuff, there's lots of questions that emerge. But when I consider the world, this is me personally, when I consider the world and all that life experience throws at me, an intelligent designer makes the most sense just for me personally. Out of all the other understandings of how the world came to be, it's crazy out there. And listen, even if you don't believe that it's true, you should want to believe that it's true, that there's a sovereign God and he's over the the wildness, he's over the chaos. Now, the reality is some of us live in a constant state of chaos, don't we? And you can have a well-ordered closet, a well-ordered schedule, a well-ordered bank account, and yet you can constantly live in fear of what's around the corner, and what if he gets sick again, and what if my kid you know, doesn't want to hang out around us anymore, what if I lose this, con- uh, this contract, what if this candidate gets into office, what if this cancer comes back? You know what the biggest difference between you and God is? God doesn't believe he's you. And the reality that God is means that we don't have to be. He orders the sun and the stars and he holds back the wind and the waves and he hovers over the chaos and the wildness and he brings meaning and he brings form and that has to be our foundational understanding as Christians. One of my favorite childhood movies from the 80s was The NeverEnding Story. Anyone else like The NeverEnding Story? I have a friend that named his kid Atreyu. He liked it so much, right? But in the story, the nothing threatens to overtake Fantasia. What is the nothing? It's nothing. It's nothing. But at the same time, you know what it is? It's darkness, and it's fear, and it's depression, and it's evil, and it's anxiety. And in this story... The fantasy world of Fantasia will cease to function, will cease to have form when the human reader stops believing in it. And it's only when Sebastian will say the name of the Empress that will bring order and function back to this world of Fantasia. It's one of the best movies. It's great. At the end, Sebastian finally gets the courage to realize I need to say the name of this empress. I get to bring form and function into the middle of all of this. And, 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 he, and he goes and, and he opens the windows. And right as he says the name, he chooses the name of his mother and he declares it out, thus saving Fantasia. But at the same time that he says it, the thunder crashes and so you can't hear it. Frustrated me. I looked it up. The name he actually said, this is, this is crazy, is Moonchild. That was his mom's name, Moonchild. What Genesis 1 declares us to us is that God, like Sebastian, he brings order and defines our function. And listen, what we're going to talk about next week, and I want you to come back because this is critical foundation-level conversation. This is how we inform our worldview for people that would say, I want to be guided and directed by Christ. I want the Bible to be my foundation. Here's the reality. When God defines our function, that's like the final word. When God defines our identity, we don't get to edit that. God, God is the one that decides how we function and this is so critical as we, like, just culturally, like, in our, in our culture, in our society, engage these crazy identity politics.
This is why we believe what we believe. He hovers over the waters. Come back for that conversation. It's really critical. And what brings us hope as we think about how, just how crazy the world is, is that God is, he's created it to be his shalom peace. And some of us live with his chaos and we, we cry out in our hearts and our souls, God, would you just help me to experience that here? And we're reminded that God created it to be peaceful and it went sideways, but he's going to restore that again. And Jesus says, hey, when you pray, this is what I want you to ask for. God, would your kingdom come in my life as it is in heaven? Like, I want that peace right now. And some of you are entering into a new year, and you're so glad this last year is done. And it's a fresh start. It is a fresh start. And would you, just in our time of prayer here in just a moment, as we kind of like sing this out and worship this out, would you say, God, I want that order. I want you to define me. I want you to bring that peace in a place that's just felt like nothing but storms. Let's pray together and let's do that. God, we are grateful for your word. This is like hard. Like I have been up at night just thinking about how to communicate this. God, wanting to be faithful to your word, but then also, Lord, just to be able to discern how we bring this into our hearts and our minds right here and right now in 2024. God, for the people in the room that would say, I want that kingdom to come and your will be done. I want that peace that you originally intended for creation because like, this is nuts. And I don't know how I can keep doing. God, would you just speak your peace and your Sabbath rest over these friends here today? God, we love you. We praise you. Thank you that you are a renewing, redeeming, function-giving God, that you are not... Um, you are not bound by what happens in the world. You're over it. We just remind our hearts of that. God, we worship you. We praise you. And even, Lord, in these moments of worship, in these next few moments, God, would your spirit just come and breathe this, like let this just settle into our hearts a little bit. We love you, Jesus. We praise you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.